Our uh, scripture passage this morning comes to us from 1 Peter. I invite you to turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been looking at portions of this passage over the last uh, number of uh, weeks. Uh, we focused on um, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, on what this passage was teaching us about the reality of evil uh, in the world, and especially in relation to the church. Then last week we looked at verse 8, uh, which focuses on the, uh, the character of the church itself, which really uh, draws forth uh, that persecution in many ways in the world in which we live. And uh, so this morning we're going to focus on verses 13 to 17, especially verse, uh, verse 15, uh, which really uh, shows us uh, where, does, where does this life really come from? Uh, what empowers uh, the Christian life to, to be uh, what we are called to be? And so this is the word of the Lord, 1 Peter 3, uh, beginning at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And this is the word of the Lord. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we, uh, as we already mentioned this morning, Lord, all that we do in the Christian life is dependent on your grace. And so whether it is the preaching of the word or the hearing of your word with faith, uh, Lord, we are dependent uh, on your grace again today. So help us, we pray that we might indeed know the presence of your Holy Spirit uh, in our midst, both in the preaching of the word and in opening our ears to hear what you would have us to hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, are you a pessimist or are you an optimist? According to the dictionary, a pessimist is, see if this describes you, a pessimist is a person who habitually that means kind of all the time, sees or anticipates the worst and is disposed to be gloomy. That's a pessimist. On the other hand, an optimist is defined as a person who is disposed to take a favorable view of events or conditions and to expect the most favorable outcome. Which are you? Disposed to be gloomy, um, anticipating the worst, or disposed to take a favorable view, expecting the most favorable of outcomes. Which are you? But more importantly, of course, this morning, uh, who are we called to be in Christ? Over these past couple of weeks, we've been reminded by the Apostle Peter that as we live as aliens and exiles and sojourners and pilgrims in this world, we're called upon in Christ to live, remember, we're to live such good lives among the Gentiles, those who are unbelievers, who are not Christian, uh, that they would see our good deeds and ultimately that would lead them to, to glorify God. And as such, we are, as Paul puts it, to live lives then worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling we've received, which simply means that our lives are to reflect the supreme worth of who Jesus is, 
That's a life worthy of the gospel because he is so worthy of our praise and glory that we are called as Christians to live such a life that, that reflects how supremely worthy the Lord is of all our praise and all our worship. We are to be the church, as we found out last week. Verse 8 of chapter 3 told us what that church is all about as we consider that five-fingered hand of fellowship that you're going to give to the Mendozas today. Harmony, sympathy, family, tender hearts, and, and humility. And what a firm welcome handshake that is. Who wouldn't want to be a part of such a community, such a family, which displays these marks of the Christian church? But we also saw, didn't we? We saw uh, that such a church, who's being the church in Christ, uh, who's faithfully walking in the ways of Jesus, faithfully doing good, desiring to love life and see good days, as Peter puts it here, keeping their lips from deceit and evil, seeking peace and pursuing it, being in fact zealous for what is good, demonstrating good behavior in Christ, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Such a church needs, says Peter, to be prepared for the reality of evil and to know how to respond to evil, to bless and not curse and rejoice in our Redeemer from evil. We are saved. We are ultimately blessed. There is no one to harm us in Christ. But nonetheless, the glorious body of Christ will face persecution, said Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, as you know, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you don't desire to live a godly life, you don't have to worry about persecution, the Bible says. If you're not living for Jesus, you don't need to worry about the world being evil towards you. But if you love God, and if you love Jesus, and if you actually desire to live a godly life because you're so thankful for his grace, well then, says Peter, then yes, there will be persecution. And so in light of these truths, though, are you a pessimist or an optimist? Um, are you disposed to be gloomy, anticipating the worst? Because, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of evil. Or are you disposed to take a favorable view and expect a most favorable outcome? Well, the Apostle Peter leaves us in no doubt as to who we're called to be in Christ. And this is what he says, verse 13. Now, who's there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, uh, nor be troubled. Now, again, we noted who is going to harm you. That's a rhetorical question that Peter is asking. He's expecting the answer, well, no one. No one. Uh, can harm someone who is united to Christ. If you're zealous, the word there could be translated, if you're an enthusiast for what is good. You know, one of Jesus' disciples, you know, was named Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a political party committed to rebellion against the Roman Empire. They wanted to get Rome out of the Holy Land. But Jesus is not saying become a political zealot, uh, but be a zealot for what is good. Uh, desire it. Um, and when you do that, this confidence is, is yours. No one can harm the child of God. And even if you suffer, says Peter, for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Remember Matthew 5:10. Blessed, said Jesus, are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so God is righteous. Verse 18 is going to tell us that Jesus is the righteous one. Just and true is his name. And so if being zealous for what is good and right and just and true and what is pleasing to the righteous God in accord with his holy and righteous will and purposes leads to suffering, says Peter, you'll be blessed. You belong to him. So fundamentally, Peter is saying to us, fundamentally, the believer in Jesus Christ 
knows that no ultimate harm can come to them, and their end is blessing. They are under the favor of God. Therefore, no fear of them, that is, those who seek to do evil and persecute the righteous, no fear, nor, says Peter, are we troubled. The word troubled is the word frightened. Uh, This is not true for the believer In Christ, our fundamental disposition, Peter's going to tell us here, is not one of gloom and doom, fear and despair, troubled and distraught, and frightened of what is to come. No. The Christian does not read the local newspaper and watch the latest news and hang their head and let their spirit droop with a woe-is-me attitude. This is not what Peter is preaching. Instead, Peter will tell us the Christian, the believer in Jesus Christ, is fundamentally characterized uh, by a hope which evil cannot destroy. First of all, it's a hope, Peter says, rooted in the truth that Christ is Lord. But, he says in verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, that is, set apart. So here's the thing in this passage that we need to understand. The opposite of fearing them fearing persecution and evil and suffering and all those things, and being troubled by them, the opposite of all that, says Peter, is to have Christ the Lord firmly rooted, seated, enthroned in your heart as the Holy One. This is the antidote, says Peter, to fear and trouble, to doom and gloom, recognizing in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord. No fear of them. Now, the word fear there, of course, you might know, is the Greek word phobeo, from which we get all our phobias, um, like arachnophobia, fear of spiders, Mr. Eisnogel. Um, we've got ombrophobia, fear of rain, uh, phonophobia, fear of sound, doors closing or a loud conversation or maybe a loud preacher sometimes, you know, when he gets out of control and, and you're just, oh, I can't stand that. I've got phonophobia. Too many loud sounds. Uh, troubled is the same word. Uh, Peter says no fear uh, nor trouble. Troubled is actually the same word. It, it's a version of phobia. So it could be translated not frightened. No, no. Now Why? Why no fear? Why no troubling? Why no being frightened? Why must the Christian have no fear of those who would do them harm? Why is our Christian life not to be characterized by fright of that which threatens to harm us? Because, says Peter, the Christian honors Christ in their heart. That's why. To honor Christ the Lord as holy is to set apart Christ. That's what holy means, to set apart Christ as the, uh, Christ the Lord, as the one who rules in your life and heart. It's an awareness, a commitment, an acknowledgement in your life uh, that Jesus is king. It is to know that you uh, need not live in fear of evil or be troubled by the government or uh, worried about what the governor or president might do or, or chewing your fingernails uh, over the latest election results because you know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King. Set apart Christ as Lord. That's how it could be translated. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, or set apart Christ as 
Lord. To honor as holy means to regard as, to set apart as, uh, to acknowledge. So in the Lord's Prayer, we are taught to pray, uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is, may your name be hallowed, that is, set apart as holy uh, in my life, in the family, in the church, and in the world. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Now here Peter says, the Christian who, who no, needs not fear evil or be frightened has set apart Christ as Lord in their heart. In your hearts. That is in the core, Peter is saying, of your being. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible says. Out of the heart flow the issues of life. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also with the heart, says Paul in Romans 10.10, one believes with the heart. And so Peter's saying at the very center of your believing and your thinking and your living and your loving, you must set apart Christ as Lord. Now this means believers' hearts are controlled by Christ. A Lord is a master. A Lord is a sovereign. A Lord is a ruler. And here Peter's saying the believer dedicates then their entire life to him or sees their life as completely underneath his rule. The same majestic authority and rule accorded to God, for instance, in the, in the Old Testament, uh, is here attributed to Jesus. Set apart Christ as Lord. Same word used back in uh, the Old Testament for God. So Isaiah 8, 12 says this, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. We don't share the fear of the unbelieving world. But, verse 13 of Isaiah 8 says, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Does that sound familiar? The Lord of hosts, you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Have awe and reverence, not for what the world can do, but have much more awe and reverence for who God is and who Jesus is. And may he be ruling in your heart. Of course, what Peter preached at Pentecost uh, to the folks gathered there, you know, you crucified, the, uh, you crucified Jesus on the cross. That was what God foreordained uh, to happen for our salvation. But now he has raised him from the dead and proclaimed him as both Christ and Lord. John 14, Jesus says, do not let your hearts uh, be troubled. You know, do not, do not fear. Why not? Well, because Christ is Lord. So this is how you fight fear as a Christian living in America in 2022. This is how you fight troubling thoughts about the world in which you live. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus reigns, not Satan. Christ is master and ruler and, and commander of all things, not the evil one. Remember, that's what Job learned. Shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? The Lord is God. Uh, Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, said Job, yet will I trust in him. So no matter what happens, Job says, at the end of that book and throughout that book is, he is Lord. And we say Christ is Lord. Therefore, I will not fear nor be troubled. Now, if you were listening this morning... As uh, Bobby and Ruth were welcomed into membership, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm mentioning your name again. I know after last week I said the Mendoza's name so many times, they, they they, they, fear struck their heart. 
Uh, is this going to be every week? He's going to be calling us out? Well, sorry, this week too, but, but, just, um, but just, just on this. You would have heard the fourth vow of membership that I asked them. And it goes like this. Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord? And do you promise that in reliance on the grace of God, you will serve him with all that is in you, forsake the world, resist the devil, put to death your sinful deeds and desires, and lead a godly life? Do you acknowledge, like Peter says Christians do, that Jesus is your sovereign Lord? Do you know what that means? It's to say that I belong not to myself. I belong to another. I do not live for myself. I am not the captain of my own ship. I am not the master and commander of my fate. I am not numero uno in my life. I have a Lord and a master, and his name is Jesus. I belong to someone else. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price, and so I need not fear. Uh, I need not be troubled or frightened because Christ is Lord. This last uh, week, I was sharing with Elder Matt and the deacons a sermon I was meditating on by Martin Lloyd-Jones from Acts 12. It's the story of the Apostle Peter being thrown in prison by Herod, being kept uh, overnight, uh, only to be brought out the next morning to be put to death. And Lloyd-Jones points out how the Scriptures goes out of its way to point out that that night, when he knew he was going to be put to death the next morning, what do we find Peter doing when he knows that certain death awaits him in the morning? Uh, the Bible says, well, he's, he's surrounded by all these kind of guards. And what's Peter doing? He's got a guard on the right, guard on the left. The Bible says he's... Peter was sleeping. Sound asleep. So sound asleep, that passage says, the angel had to shake him awake. Get up. Get out. You know, I know you're slumbering there, but, you know, get up. What does that mean? Well, Peter didn't know what was going to... Peter thought he was going to die, but he was sound asleep. How can that be? Why no fear? Why not frightened? Oh, because Christ is Lord in his heart. So our hope is rooted in the truth that Christ is Lord. Secondly, our hope prepares us. Our hope prepares us to be always, always ready. Always, says Peter, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, I think we've all uh, been there. You're in your pajamas. Uh, you've just sat down maybe to dinner, or you've just curled up on the couch with a good book, and the doorbell rings. Ding dong. You're not expecting anyone? Who would come to the door unannounced? Oh, it must be Amazon. I'll just leave it. Uh, no, doorbell rings again. Oh. So you peep through the curtains, and you check your ring device on your phone, but you can't make out clearly who it is. That ah, could be someone from church. Better open it. Uh, you want to ignore them, but the, uh, you know, the bell keeps ringing. You slowly approach the door, hoping they'll go away, but they don't. Uh, you open the door, and there they are. Two finely dressed folks with some books in their hand. Hello, we're from the... and you want to close the door quickly, but it's too late. You can't do it. You patiently listen, uh, but are thinking of every possible reason you can use to get rid of them. Never perhaps realizing that this is an opportunity for you 
to lead others to Christ. Are you ready? Now, the key words, of course, in verse 15 are always and uh, anyone. Now, remember, Peter's speaking here to every Christian. Remember that? Uh, verse 8, finally, all of you. Not, we're not talking about husbands, we're not talking about wives, not talking about just kids, not talking about pastors, not talking about elders. All of you, every Christian, uh, every believer is to be always ready, prepared, he says, to make a defense to anyone who asks. Every Christian is to be always ready uh, to make a defense or give an answer. The word for make a defense, as you probably know, is the word from which we get the word apologetic. Uh, that simply means that every Christian must be ready to give an answer for why they believe what they believe, why they hope in what they hope, why they have peace and joy and rest in what they believe. Are you ready? Are you ready? Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a major in philosophy or have a master of divinity. You don't have to be an expert in atheism and have studied you know, all the different apologetic proofs for the existence of God, thankfully. But you do need to be ready Always, says the Bible, to give a reason for why you do what you do. Believe what you believe and live what you live. Be ready. Now, now that means not only must you be willing to give an answer, but of course the assumption here is that you are equipped to give an answer. You cannot give an answer, of course, unless you know the answer. Two questions like, well, who is... Who is this Jesus whom you seem to take such joy in? Who is Jesus? I heard you mention the gospel. What is the gospel? Um, You and I need to know. Why do you have hope? Why do you celebrate Thanksgiving? Um, What has Jesus done? Why is your life characterized by hope rather than by despair? Now, we can't be ready and prepared to make a defense for the reason for the hope that's in you unless, of course, you yourself truly have that hope and know why you do. Imagine you're working, let's say, at the California Welcome Center. Uh, Let's say a visitor from Italy comes in. You're working down down here, I think it's Ontario, at the Welcome Center. A visitor from Italy comes in, not knowing the first thing about California, where to go, sights to see, and they come up to the desk and they ask you, uh, you know, we're from Italy, new here, uh, what should I do? Or what's to see? And you're behind the desk at the Welcome Center, and, um, and you try to ignore them. And you say, um, and you say well, I don't know. I just work here. And they're like, oh, oh okay, I thought you were, uh, you know, I thought you were uh, a resident of California, and I thought you, I thought, you know, I thought, I, I thought I'd be able to get some kind of understanding of what, ca- no. And in fact, you, instead of answering their question, as soon as you see them coming, uh, you head for the door. That would be really strange if you are a resident of California working at the Welcome Center and yet uh, are not ready to give an answer about this state. Well, we're to be ready, says the Apostle Peter. Now, the answer, of course, the Christian gives when asked, what's the reason here? What's going on here? Why are you worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day instead of mowing your lawn? Is not, I don't know. I don't know. Or I was just born optimistic. You know. Or, uh, you know, I'll give you my elders or pastor's email and phone number. Uh, you text them and ask them, and I'm sure they'll get back to you. The answer is not, well, you know, my parents have always brought me here, so I just haven't left. 
I haven't figured out where the door is. Um, I just keep coming. Uh, I don't know the exit. Um, no, that's not the, that's not the answer. No, says Peter, you must be ready. Uh, are you? And, and if you're not, if you're saying, well, I'm not, why not? And, uh, and if it's why not, uh, what are you doing to be ready? Because the Bible says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth speaks. We need to know Jesus. We need to know his person. We need to know his work. We need to know what Peter has been telling us in these chapters, which goes like this in 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power, grace, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is what Peter says. Those who have a living hope will be asked questions today by our culture. Why are they going to ask questions? Because, friends, our culture is characterized by a dead despair. And maybe some of your friends are characterized by a dead despair. Maybe you know professing believers who are characterized by a dead despair. And they'll ask you, well, why are, why are you filled with hope? Why do you love to worship God? And they'll ask you, what makes the difference? And Peter says, you must be prepared to tell them of Jesus. Now, the interesting thing here, of course, is that the presumption is, the presumption is that the unbeliever will be asking questions of the believer, right? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. So this is, Peter's, this is what Peter's assumption is. Christians like you and I going about our business, there's going to be an unbeliever who's going to come along and, and ask you, why about you? Now, some look at that and say, well, obviously, you know, unless somebody asks me, then I guess I don't have to be worried about sharing Jesus with anybody. Yeah, I'll just wait for them to ask, because that's what the Bible says. And until someone asks me, I don't have a word to say. And I'm thankful. Hmm. Well, I only need to be on the defensive, not the offensive. Um, you know, no one asks, I can remain silent about Jesus the rest of my life. No. There are plenty of passages which teach us that we must go on the offensive. Think about the man healed from demon possession in Mark 5, where this man is healed and Jesus is about to leave and this new Christian simply wants to stay close to Jesus. And uh, Mark says of Jesus, as he was getting into the boat, Jesus getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Please let me come. And he didn't permit him. He said, no. But said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away, this man, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, what? How much Jesus had done for him. Go home. Tell your wife. Tell your husband. Tell your children. Tell your grandchildren. Tell your parents. Tell your friends that you hang out with all week. What Jesus has done. For you, that's the calling of the Christian everywhere. Tell of what Christ has done for you. Psalm 107 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he's good. 
For the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Yeah. No, we are, we're told to go on the offensive. But here, here, the point is, as Peter's uh, kind of emphasis has been, here Peter's point is that when you live for Christ, when you know you've been born again, the words come in, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're walking in the ways of Christ. When, when you're living for Christ, when you walk with Jesus in this world, when you put your hope in Christ, not in the things of the world, others will notice. They'll see your life and they'll be forced to ask questions. What's going on with you? Why are you hopeful? Why are you, uh, why are you different? Might be the grocery store clerk. Might be the nurse at the hospital. A worker at the department store. Maybe an online chat person. Maybe a friendly inquirer. Maybe an angry antagonist. And what stands out about the Christian uh, that will compel others to ask questions? Well, Peter says it's uh, when they ask you to give a reason for the, for the hope. The hope that's in you. Now, he's been talking about that a lot. We just read it from the first couple verses. Because you've been born again by the Holy Spirit of God, united to Jesus Christ by faith, you have a living hope. And people are going to ask. Why are you different? Why are you like everyone else in American culture today? This is uh, all about what others see in you that forces them to ask, what's the reason for this? And we need to welcome and rejoice in the questions that others ask. I was at the doctor's office this past week, uh, getting a checkup um, and, and so forth, and the nurse was doing up the paperwork, and we're going through the drill. You know, she's listing all the things. Do you have this? Do you have that? And and, uh, and so forth. And then I told her we were, you know, moving to New Jersey. And then she asked, well, why New Jersey? And I said, well, I'm a pastor, and I've been called to that, that church. And then, uh, and then that wonderful question. She said, uh, well, uh, what made you decide to be a pastor? Oh, boy. Oh, it was great. I had like two minutes, really, because she had to work. But uh, what a window of opportunity. And I gave her, I think I gave her kind of the full testimony in two minutes. Yeah, I grew up in a church, but then I wandered far from the Lord. God was very gracious, brought me back to him, opened his word, understood his word, uh, you know, went to Christian call, and so, and so forth, about his grace. And uh, people will ask questions, and we've got to be ready, says Peter. God is going to give us, going to give you opportunities at school, at the barber, at Home Depot, Target, wherever, whoever, and because Christ the Lord, here's the thing, here, because Christ the Lord's on the throne of your heart, you will be ready. And the Christian life you lead will provoke questions from others. In a world of despair, you are a beacon of hope. But if you are just as despairing as the world around you because you don't know Christ, and Christ the Lord has not been set apart in your heart, and you're living for yourself and not for Jesus, who is your Redeemer and Savior, others will have nothing to ask of you. Does anyone ever ask you for a reason for the hope that's in you? Does anyone ever notice that you are different? If not, something is terribly wrong in our life. Because Peter assumes that as you're living for Christ in a world of evil, all people will notice 
those who belong to Jesus, you see. The point here is Christians are meant to stand out in the world. Christians are meant to stand out in the America of 2022, transformed, not conformed, upholding life and God the creator and men and women in the image of God and marriage of one man and one woman, that there is truth, uh, that there is a heaven, that there is a hell and Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and I have found peace and love and joy and hope uh, in him. And if that's you, people are going to ask. We're meant to be different. They're going to say, why hope, why peace, why joy, and the rest. So we're not characterized by gloom and doom and despair and desperation. Peter says we're characterized by this living hope. So it's rooted in, in Christ the Lord set apart in our hearts. Uh, it's a hope that uh, enables us to be always ready to give a reason for that hope, rooted in the Lord Jesus. And then, of course, uh, the Apostle Peter says our hope also shapes the character of our response to those who ask. Always being prepared, he says, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it, he says, with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Wow. I'm not sure we could come up with two words which were more countercultural than these two. When you think of the America of 2022, two words which would not come to mind are gentleness and respect. Instead, we're treated to a daily diet of harshness and insults, rudeness and slander. But this is not, the Bible would say, this is not how you have learned Christ. While someone, uh, when someone asks you about what you believe, why you have hope, why you're different from the majority of the world around you, you're to be ready, says the Apostle Peter, with an answer. And that answer is not to be given with a sledgehammer. Let me tell you. Boom. But with gentleness and respect. Why is this important? The Bible tells you and I, as professing believers, the Lord Jesus Christ is just as much concerned with how we answer as with what we answer. Isn't that amazing? With how we answer, as with what we answer. Gentleness, kindness, and humility is what that means. Respect, it was used earlier in Peter. It means showing honor. Well, how do you show honor to someone who's set against you in this passage? Well, you can respect and honor somebody because you, you know that they too are made in the image of of God. They were created by Him for His glory, to worship Him just like you. And you answer with gentleness and humility and kindness and, and respect and, and honor because here's another image bearer whom God has called to, to, worship, to worship Him. Gentleness. Now sometimes, of course, uh, we get confused about this. We understand and believe that the message of the cross of Jesus is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And so we interpret that to mean that if we are a stumbling block to Jews, and if we are foolish in our relationship to Gentiles, unbelievers, that somehow this is a badge of honor. You know, someone might say, well, listen, the truth hurts. Sorry. Uh, well, yes, sometimes the truth hurts, but more often it is you and I who hurt each other. <coughs> because of our sin. No, says Peter, we're called to give an answer with gentleness and respect. It is the gospel itself 
which is an offense to the unbeliever, we are not to be offensive. Now, here's the thing. Why? Why does, why does how you respond to an unbeliever, why does how you do that matter to the Lord at all? Just If we just give them the truth, they don't like it too bad. Why does it matter at all? Because the Bible tells us that those in whom Christ the Lord reigns and rules over their hearts will strive to be living models of the Lord Jesus himself in all that they say and do. In fact, you prayed this earlier for yourself. You said, have your own way, Lord. Have your own way. I'm the, I'm the clay. You're the potter. You prayed to the Lord. He said, Fill me with your spirit till all shall see. This is what you prayed to the Lord this morning. Till all shall see Christ only, always living in me. That's what you prayed. You want that prayer answered? Hope so. That's what you prayed. And this is Peter says how it works out. That even when you're giving an answer for the reason, for the hope that's in you, rooted in Christ the Lord in your heart, oh, you do it in likeness to Christ, with gentleness and respect. Because Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus says this, take my yoke upon you. Come, yoke, be yoked with me, just like cattle were yoked. You know, get in beside me here, Jesus says. Get united to me. Here comes my yoke. You're now, you're now united to Jesus Christ by faith. And learn from me. Pay attention. For I am gentle, he says. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls, for my yoke, you know that, that, that being yoked is easy, and the burden we're pulling is light. Yoked to Jesus, we exemplify the master. We learn from the master also in how we give an answer. And so, friends, when Christ the Lord is set apart within, he also reigns throughout our life, governing our words and our responses that we are gentle and lowly in heart. Well, here's the thing. This is what Peter says the world must see of you and me, even as we speak boldly for Jesus, fearlessly and unashamedly, even in the face of slander and evil and persecution or suffering, what they will see then is something of Jesus himself. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The hymn says it best. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. By his love and power controlling, by his love and power controlling all I do and say. It's all rooted in his love for me. May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win. That's what Peter's talking about here. And may they forget the channel, right? Seeing only him. This is the calling of the Christian. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you, dear God, for your grace. We thank you, dear God, that none of this makes any sense to us at all unless 
you have caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, granting us the gift of faith and repentance, drawing us to yourself, that we might see something of the wonder and glory of who you are and then who you have called us to be in union with Christ. Christ is Lord in our hearts, and we in him, living for him, living for Jesus in all that we say, all that we do, that others might see something of him in us. May we have an answer, dear Lord, to give to one who asks us a reason for the hope that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.